glad that you are here. And um, as people are turning in their Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, I would love to invite you that if you are new here or if you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles like this in our uh, chairs, below our chairs. And if you want to find 1 John chapter 4 in this ESV Bible, it's on page 961. And I would even encourage you further that if you don't have a Bible and you're new here, get one of these Bibles and feel free to take it home as a gift from Santa Cruz Baptist Church to you. So um, please. And if you have a friend who needs a Bible, that's why we get them. Take one and then you can go give it away. This weekend... My wife and I were spending our time together and she thought it would be a great idea for us to clean our house. <laughs> and so me being the loving husband that I am, I said, that is a great idea, honey. Let's clean the house. And so I got up and I started doing some dishes. I even went into the bathroom and cleaned the shower without her telling me to do so. I know, thank you, thank you. And after about seven minutes of intense hard work, I went and sat on the couch. Why? Because under my definition of the word cleanliness, I had accomplished the task. And it was good. Our house was clean. You know what I'm talking about? Kelly, on the other hand, kept working. And after about five minutes of her continuing to work, I got a bit embarrassed. And so I said to her, honey, we're done. And obviously, as some of you know, that was not well received. <laughs> Do you know what our problem is? We have many problems in our marriage, but our problem in this weekend's cleanliness issue is that she defines cleanliness as this, 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 and this. I define cleanliness as this, this, and period, end. <laughs> so with a show of hands, who believes that her definition of cleanliness is good? Just a few of you, just a few of you. Who in here empathizes with me and defines cleanliness? There are a few Men who have no clue about life who agree with me. It all is in how we define things. It's all in how we define things. Your view of cleanliness may not be my view of cleanliness. They're definitely not Kelly's view of cleanliness. But praise God that I have a wife who has a standard that I do not have. 
And so when we present our house, it's beautiful and it's clean. And if you've ever come into our house, our house is clean. That's no thanks to me. Even though I will participate in that cleanliness, I by no means am the one to define what a clean house should look like. So as we turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, again on page 961, I would encourage you with one thing that we are going to focus on this morning. I would love for us to get to the place this morning where our definition of love matches God's definition of love. Let's read 1 John 4, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. My question this morning, how do we perceive love? Through what lens do I define love? You know, I do it through my past experiences. I do it through my own definitions. I do it through my expectations of what I think love should look like. But is that a biblical view of love? I think the reason that many of us struggle with this concept of love is because we don't see love through God's lens. Verse 7 states that God is the origin of love. That's point number one this morning. God is the origin of love. His very nature is love. He loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to perfectly live the love that God has taught. Because God is love. How has he shown this love to us? I would love to just ask that question to you. How has God shown you love? Let me just give you a few. He's shown you mercy. He's given us faith. He shows justice. He has answered so many of our prayers. He has protected us. He's forgiven us. His very presence shows us his love. His provision the very fact that we have a meal, the very fact that we wake up every morning and we're breathing the breath of life is God's love to us. His patience, his kindness, and we could go on and on all day, couldn't we? We love each other because love is from God. More than that, we love others because God is love. Did you see that in verse 8? That's a jaw dropper. God is love. When I was preparing for this sermon, it reminded me of a book that I read years ago, and so I dusted it off the shelves. It's called Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. That book opened my eyes to seeing love through God's lens as opposed to love through my lens. In that book, it defines four types of love. Three of them natural, one of them 
supernatural. The three loves are affection, which is storge love, friendship, which is phileo love, eros, which is a romantic, intimate love, and then the fourth, the supernatural one, is charity. It's called agape love. You know, love seems so simple, yet I would argue that it is the most complicated concept to consider from a human perspective. And I would take it one further and say it is one of the hardest attributes to understand about God. We desire love. We need love. We give everything in our lives to receive love. And then when we get love, or what we perceive is love, many times we reject it, or we revolt against it, or we turn against the very source of what we perceive to be love. Then we're hurt by it, and then we run from it. Has anyone ever done that in here? Some of you may be feeling that right now. God is love. Well, God is hurting me, or God is doing this, or God is doing that. And I perceive that through my definition of love, and I am going to run. Does everybody see that? Can I give you an example that will touch each one of us? Has anyone in this room ever been hurt by a family relationship? I don't want you to raise your hands because they may be sitting near you. (laughs) has anyone in this room ever been hurt by someone in their family I would venture to say almost every one of us would raise our hands do you know that that familial affectionate love is storge love has anyone in here lost a deep friendship of a friend who say they were high school friends or they were college roommates or they were your best friend And then what happens? Has anyone ever lost a friendship like that? Yes, I have. That is called phileo love. Has anyone ever broken off an engagement? Has anyone ever had a broken marriage? Again, I don't ask you to show hands, but I say that is painful. That's a love that you go, man, can I handle this? Do you know what kind of love that is? That is eros, love. Which form of these loves that I'm about to share with you from natural love resonate with you? Anyone in here love nature? Anyone in here have a love for your country? A love of home, a love of family, a love of your mom or dad, for brothers, sisters, a love for your children, a love of a spouse? What about a love of a pet, or a love of a team, or love of knowledge, or love of science, or love of truth? I personally love competition. I am gaining in my love for surfing. Some of you really love surfing. Or music, or movies. What about a love of a religion or a cause? These are all things we love. These form those three definitions of natural love. But in each of these natural love, there is something that is missing. 
C.S. Lewis quotes, Natural love can become a demon when it becomes a god with a little g. Boy, I had to read that one again. Natural love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. Natural love, how quick we will drop her when she starts to sink. Again, affection. We long to be needed. We need to be needed. As children, we love to be loved. In fact, none of us would even be reared by our parents if it weren't for affectionate storge love. If we try to live by affection alone, though, affection will fail us. Storge love has a limit. Storge love can fail us. Secondly, friendship. While lovers are absorbed face to face in each other, friends are absorbed by side to side in common interest. A friendship is free from that affectional need to be needed. Friendship sees it the exact same way that our buddy sees it until we cease to keep seeing it in the same way that our buddy saw it. We long for friendship. We long for companionship. Friendship can be a school of virtue and friendship can be a school of vice. Friendship does and has to exclude. That's the reality of friendships. And the natural love of phileo love can fail us. What about eros? It's the state of being in love. Has anyone in here ever fallen in love? In fact, without Eros, none of us would even have been born. Eros love is intoxicating. Do any of you remember the first time you fell in love? Do you remember the decisions that you made while you were in that state of intoxicating love? Do you remember? It is for love's sake that I neglect my parents or I left my children or I cheated on my partner or I failed my friend at their greatest moment of need because I was in this intoxicating love. The world rings with complaints of fickleness. Did you know that Eros makes you a promise until it falls out of love? Eros love can fail us. These natural loves get defined by the world. They're controlled by the world. And yet they influence and oftentimes taint our Christian definition of the origin of godly love. Which limits our depth and our understanding of who God is. Do y'all see that? God is love, and his love never fails. My problem, I don't see it through his lens. I see it through my own lens. So those are the three natural loves. Let's now look at what agape love is. This is really cool and why we're bringing it up this morning. 29 times 
in this passage that I'm preaching this morning, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21, 29 times the word love is translated agape in the English Standard Version translation. 29 times this morning in 14 verses. Do you think God is trying to get our attention? In fact, 551 times love is referenced in the Bible. 221 of those in the New Testament and 106 of those 221, the Greek usage of the word of love is agape. Agape. C.S. Lewis uses the word charity, divine love, a heavenly, eternal love. If you want a real definition, here it is. Agape is a fiery affection for another's good, which is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Again, it's a fiery affection for another's good, which is ultimately found in Christ. I'll give you an example. Jesus Christ. He looked over Jerusalem and he wept with love for Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, when he was standing over Lazarus' grave, he wept with love. And finally, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, loving with all of his heart, he came knowing the cup that he would drink for you and me, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he pressed into that love with an agape, fiery affection for another's good. To love with an agape love is to be vulnerable. To love with an agape love is to be active. Oftentimes, to love with an agape love is to certainly be wrung out and possibly to even be broken. So why do we love? Why do we open ourselves up to the vulnerability of love? We love because we were created in the image of God. And can I remind you, God is love. We have been given an intense longing for love. That is every person in the history of humanity has been given that deep affection, that longing for friendship, for affection, for intimacy, and for purpose that can only come from the depth of love. From the moment that we breathe our first to the moment that we breathe our last, we are longing to be loved, knowing oftentimes what is the consequence of love. Drew, as we've been studying the book of 1 John, has given us three tests. One, a doctrinal test. Do I believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Number two, a moral test. Do I actually obey his commands? And third, which really hits to the heart of it this morning in 1 John 4, 7 through 21, is a social test. Do I love one another? If I love God, then I will love my brother. You know what's amazing? In these 14 verses, the love 
It says specifically, love one another three times this week. Love one another. And in the entire Bible, love one another is expressed 13 times. This passage is hitting a very big concept. If I love God, I will love one another. My conduct must flow from my confession. So in this, we look on. Point number two. We must perceive love from love's origin. We must perceive love from love's origin. We cannot see it from our own definition. We have to see it from the definition of the very origin of love. And that is God. It is a divine love. Kristen Emmer read this morning from 1 Corinthians 13 about love. And I want to read it again. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. And love endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends. I'll give you one guess what love it is talking about there. What would you guess? It's agape love. It's agape love. It's not affectionate love. It's not a friendship love. It's not an intimate romantic love. It is a sacrificial agape charity love. That is God's definition of love. What's amazing is that that passage is written in the context of his bride, the church, equipping his bride, the church, to learn how to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church because God is love. He not only created love and he not only defined love, but then he modeled love through love's appearance, the man Jesus. Look in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see those words pop out in verses 9 and 10? God his love was made manifest among us. God sent his one and only son. And it's not that we have loved God, but it is that God has loved us. Did you know that the love of God was declared? It was made manifest. It was made visible when God sent his son into the world. Aaron read John 3.16, and we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son. He doesn't just 
sent his son. God initiated love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Look at Romans 5, verse 8 on the screen. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that may not hit all the definitions that man makes of love, but that fits the definition that God makes of love. While I was still a sinner, God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. Since God is love, do you see how God is the creator of love, the definer of love, the sender of love, the initiator of love? And then he made a way for me to restore my broken relationship that I have had through God because of my sin. In the end of verse 10, it says, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ's propitiation allows me to love God and to receive his love. Christ came. If you're new here and you don't know the gospel, Jesus Christ was sent by God and he came and he lived a perfect life here on earth. And he loved us perfectly. Then he suffered. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed. He was crucified on a cross in public humiliation, all so that he could pay for our sins, shedding his blood on the cross so as to defeat the penalty of sin so that you and I can love God and be in a relationship with God forever. Friends, that's the definition of love. What a gift. If you have never received that gift, you can do that today. And now, church, we have been given the privilege to become love's witness. Love's witness. What do I mean by that? You're going to see it in verses 12 through 15. But we, the church, those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we are his witnesses of love. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So I ask you a question. Have you ever seen God? Your answer would be no. Not physically. Then how do you know what love looks like? Because God is love but we've never seen God. Do you know how we see love? Do you know how we see God? We see it through flesh and blood right here in our community in Santa Cruz. It's called his church. Church, we are his witnesses of love. 
Let me show you that in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, church, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if we want love one another, then according to 1 John 4, three things are going to happen. We're going to abide, we're going to testify, and we're going to confess. We will abide in Him as He abides in us. Do you see that through verses 12 through 15? Secondly, we will testify. Love testifies of who God is. So we go and we share the good news that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save this world from sin and from death. And third, we confess. We confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Let me take you to a passage in Matthew chapter 16. It shows how Jesus was misunderstood. It shows how people could not begin to comprehend this love in human flesh. Matthew 16, verse, 19, or verse 15 through 19. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, And this is Simon Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this. Did y'all catch that? It's God who reveals his love. It's God who reveals this confession. And it is God who initiates this love. And then we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 18 of Matthew. And I tell you, you are Peter. And Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can I just pause and say, that's the confession. Do you know who else does confessions? I would ask for a show of hands. Has anyone else confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? You know that it's on that confession and the confession throughout history of those who have repented of their sins and have trusted Jesus Christ in salvation. That's who the church is built upon. And we are his witnesses. The gates of hell will not prevail against these confessions. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Church, that's church membership right there. That is what we are exercising next Sunday. That's what we exercise when we make the covenant to say I am a member of Santa Cruz Baptist Church and we get to be his witnesses. So we see that the origin of love is from God. We see that it appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. 
revealing true, perfect love to humanity. And the continuance of this witness of love is shown through us, his church. But there is a small problem. Actually, there's a huge problem. We cannot and we do not love naturally in the way that God designed. Anyone else confess that? I don't love the way God designed naturally, normally. You know what's wonderful about 1 John 4? God knew that, and so he made a way for that. Look at 1 John 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. He's given us of his spirit. His spirit is living inside of those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so the next point, by this we possess love. Do you know the source of love? It's the Holy Spirit living in us. Ephesians 5, verses 17 through 21 say, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, out of reference for Christ. Have y'all felt that this morning in the church? Wasn't it beautiful singing songs and making melody? Some of us singing much better than some of the others. But in all of that, we're making melody to the Lord with our heart. We're addressing one another. We're actually showing love to each other in this room. And I pray that those of you who have never experienced that, that you are feeling it right now. So here we go, church. This is God's will for us, to be filled with the Spirit, to daily set ourselves, to be filled, to be moved, to be directed, controlled by the Holy Spirit. He is our source to be able to love divinely to be able to love in a way that we do not naturally love. And when that occurs, that brings an assurance in two ways. It brings assurance in the present, and it brings assurance in the future. Keep looking at 1 John 4, verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And here it is again. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you know that God gives us assurance in the day-to-day, in the very present in love, as we abide in him, and he abides in us. But not only that, he gives us confidence on the day of judgment. He gives us confidence on that day. 
that day when we will all face judgment, those of us who have been perfected in love will be able to confidently stand before God knowing that it is His love that is in us. We have been made perfect in His sight by His definition. Is that because of us and our doing, because we're so great at love? No. It's because of His Son saving us from our sin and saving us from death. So we are His witnesses of this agape love, and our source is through the Holy Spirit, which brings me great assurance. But I can tell you one thing. I stand up here today not telling you that I have figured out love. I am not perfect in my love. I'm not perfect in my love for you, the church. I'm not perfect in my love for my wife, even though desperately I want to, even though we sometimes differ on our definitions. That was a joke. <laughs> I'm not perfect in my love for my family. I'm not perfect in my love for my neighbors. I'm sure not perfect in my love for my enemies. So the question becomes, how does our love mature? How do we get from our natural view and definition of love to this divine, charitable, agape definition of love? It's nice because he points it out in verses 18 through 20. By this we are perfected in love. Look at verse 18 of 1 John 4. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We see two contrasts to love in these three verses. Two contrasts to love. We see fear and we see hate. We see fear and we see hate. Perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we see hate. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen surely cannot love God whom he has not seen. Fear. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We love because God loved us first. Honestly, fear deals with trusting in an imperfect God. And that imperfect God brings shame, brings punishment, brings manipulation, and brings regret. Has anybody felt that false love? Love casts out that fear. So as we grow in love, our fear fades away. Well, what about hate? Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. 
And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, so this is kind of an example at church. Verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Wow. Is that exercised in the church these days? It looks like God doesn't tolerate hate. How can I be a representative of love to this broken world and practice hate among my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I even hate my enemies and be a witness of Christ? But Rob, you ask, doesn't God even hate in the Bible? And I would say, yes, he does. He hates pride. You know what else he hates? He hates sin. He won't have anything to do with it. But again, I would propose that even our natural definition of hate is not even close to understanding God's definition of hate. But as I grow in love, my hate will fade away. In his book, Loving, Loved by God, R.C. Sproul points out three chief forces that work against an authentic expression of agape love in the lives of Christian brothers and sisters. This is really, really practical. You say, what is keeping me from an authentic expression of agape love as God defines it? R.C. Sproul says three things. Number one, a love of money. Ooh, a love of money. First Timothy 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. A love of money. You see, money is not the problem. It's the love of money that cannot coexist with the love of God. Money is not the problem. It's when we start making a love of money a God. That's where that love cannot coexist with the love of God. That love keeps us from being generous. That love keeps us from being hospitable. And it keeps us from being willing to obey the will of God and go. I cannot tell you the number of times I've talked with friends and they've said, I just want to go serve the Lord. And I said, what's holding you back? And they said, debt. Debt. Debt can be a handcuff that keeps us from being used by God. Not only does a love of money work against our authentic expression of agape love, the second one is a love for the applause of man. Another one that cuts right to my heart. A love for the applause of man. 
Did you know that the highest accolade for a hypocrite is human applause? Luke 11, 39, 42 and 43 says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of your cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice, you neglect the love of God. These you ought to have done while ne without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and you love greetings in the marketplaces. My question, do I love the applause of man or do I love to please God? Is my motivation hypocritical? Do I desire to be noticed for my tithing of mint and herbs because they smell so good and everyone will notice? Do I long for the best seat in the house sitting by the best people? The love of prestige, the love of position, the love of approval of man is incompatible with the agape love of God. This is a hard one because every one of us in this room long to be accepted. We long to be approved. We love to be liked and we love to be honored. The third force that's keeping us from loving with an agape love is a fear of persecution. A fear of persecution. The avoidance of pain and suffering drives inconsistent love of God. None of us like to suffer. None of us like to go through those hardest days. And we will do everything in our power to run from that suffering. To be a follower of Christ requires a willingness to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah 53.3 says... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if you want to love with an agape love, you will be despised and rejected by men. You will be a man of sorrows and you will be very acquainted with grief. I would love to close with verse 21. It's love's command, and we choose to obey it. Verse 21 of 1 John 4. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We are called, we're commanded to love God and to love our brothers. How does this apply? How's my conduct? Does my conduct match my confession? Who do I serve? Do I serve God? Do I serve money? Do I serve man? Who do I choose to obey? Who do I love? Do I just love the easy ones? Or do I love the hard ones too? How do I even define love? This has been so penetrating to my heart 
this week because I would confess to you, I don't define love the way God defines it very well. And it was a very convicting week for me. The goal of this morning's sermon was to help us to not be misinformed about the definition of love. Wouldn't you believe, wouldn't you agree with me that we get sold the wrong bill of goods on the definition of love? And then we get mad at God. Don't be deceived by the enemy. Beloved, if we love God, then we also ought to. Yes, we must love our brothers. Will you pray with me?